Okay, here's the structure I'd like to use. Go to section one, or 88, verse 119, where he calls for the, the building of the first temple, which, by the way, had no ordinances. So what's the structure? I want to follow this same structure. Notice, he doesn't say build a temple. He says build a house of, house of, house of, right? House of prayer, house of faith, house of fasting, and I want to kind of take, take that same theme. So what are, what, what is it a house of? And I want to just take ordinance off the table for a moment. Beyond a house of ordinances, what is his house? That's our kind of our theme. So let's turn to the dedication of the building that did no ordinances. And we're going to ask with an open mind, why did we build this building? Before we ever had ordinances as a possibility, why did we build this building? Section 109, Doctrine and Covenants section 109, which total side note, look at the section heading. What does Joseph Smith say about this section? Okay, do you catch the oddness about that? God gave a prayer to say to him. God came down and said, here, say this to me. Prayer is man's offering to God. But God said, um, not this time. I need you to say things that you fully don't comprehend because you've never had a temple. So I need you to say this. So he imposed on Joseph. What, did you see how that's an anomaly? This is what I need you to say because otherwise I don't think you would say it. That is so significant to me that the Lord revealed the dedicatory prayer. So let's look for why. Why did we build this temple? And if we can strip all the others of their ordinances and make the same application and say, outside of ordinances, what does the house do? It's a house of what? All right, ready? Sorry, let me get there. Section 109, let's start in verse 5. Now, clearly, the Lord put it in the words of Joseph Smith, as if Joseph is speaking it, but it was revealed by him. For thou knowest that we have done this work through great tribulation, and out of our poverty have we given of our substance to build this house to thy name, that. Even though Joseph's not really saying this, it's in the words of Joseph Smith. We have, with great sacrifice and great poverty, built this house so that, do you see why that's a trigger? That's a huge word. We built this house that what? Outside of ordinances. Why do we build temples? Increased divine attention in his house. Here is the doctrine. There is increased divine attention in his house. No ordinance is necessary for that. Go to his house where he has a special place to commune and answer his children. Now, can he answer our prayers in the shower? Can he answer them while I'm driving my car? Absolutely. But there is increased divine attention. So I'm going to word it that way. It is a house of increased divine 
attention. I go there. I take my problems there. There's an altar there. And strip the ordinances out. There'd still be an altar there where I go and I lay my problems on the altar. It is a house of increased divine attention. Now let me show you a pattern. I'm a pattern hunter. And every time I see a pattern, it just resonates with me. So we build houses to give God a place to manifest himself to his people. That was Kirtland. Let's go back to the very first brick and mortar temple that we have a dedication for. Let's go to Solomon. Old Testament, 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon dedicates his temple. And watch that same pattern emerge. All right, 1 Kings. So Kings, Kings, Chronicles, or Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Kings, Chronicles. So 1 Kings 8. Notice in verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the congregation of Israel and spread his hands towards heaven and said, and he dedicates it. Now look for the same wording. Let's jump to 37 through 39. Anyone want to read? 1 Kings 8, 37 through 39. Whitney? Yeah. If there be in the land famine, if there be, did you say 37? Yep, you're right. If there be pestilence, blossoming, mildew, locusts, or if there be caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, right. I'm going to pause. Those are very Old Testament problems. How about we modernize them? If there be addiction, if there be failure, if there be pain and heartbreak and tragedy, if there be debt, if there be medical conditions, if someone you love is in pain, if you're hurting and don't know how to fix it, now finish, whatsoever. Whatsoever sickness there be, um, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward his house. There it is. When you're in pain, if you spread forth your hands in this house, if you come here, if you come to the house of divine increased divine attention when you're in pain, then... Increase divine attention. Whether you're there for an ordinance or you just sit in a room anywhere, even the lobby or the room off before you even have to give a recommend. There's a room you could sit in. If you come into his house with your problems, he promises to hear, forgive, do, and give. There is increased divine attention in his house. Now, let me illustrate. Remember those words. I want you to remember these words. Lord, when we're in pain, if we come here, you promise to hear and help. Watch someone quote those very, moment, those very words in a moment of pain. So now find 2 Chronicles 20. From 1 Kings, we're going to go a couple books later to 2 Chronicles 20. The king of, Israel, the king of Judah is Jehoshaphat. Moab has sent an army against King Jehoshaphat. 
And that army symbolizes every problem that has ever camped against me. Every problem that I've ever faced, financial problems and health problems and medical problems, social problems, whatever, employment problems, schooling problems, relationship problems, marital problems. That Moab, Moab represents every problem that has come to compass me. So verse 2, 2 Chronicles 2. There came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee. Do you see the symbolism here? There cometh a great multitude against thee. Verse 3, the natural reaction is we fear. But Jehoshaphat set himself to seek the Lord. And he gathers Judah. Verse 4, Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. End of verse 4, Judah came seeking the Lord. Now verse 5, where do they go? Yes, you can go home and yes, you can go to your shower. But where is their increased divine attention when you have a problem? In his house, in the house of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat gathered them inside the temple. I can imagine that was pretty crowded to gather everyone inside the temple and pray. And Jehoshaphat prays, listen to his prayer and see if it rings a bell. Starting in verse six, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art thou not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel? And gavest it to thy seed Abraham, thy friend forever. And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name's saint. Now notice what he's going to quote. In other words, Lord, we came into this land. We've built this temple. And don't you remember what you said? Listen to this sounds familiar in verse 9. If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, if we stand before this house for in thy presence and in thy presence for thy name is in this house and cry unto thee in our afflictions and thou wilt hear and help. What's he quoting? Dedicatory prayer. He's reminding the Lord. Do you remember what you promised? When we're in pain, if we come here, there is divine attention, increased divine attention. So here's our prayer. What's his real prayer? Verse 12. And I can't tell you how many times I've prayed verse 12. Father of 10, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed verse 12. O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Now, Jehovah speaks and he teaches what I believe is the reality of this principle. If there is increased divine attention in his house, then what does that mean? Ready? Verse 15. Jehovah speaks and says, Hearken all ye, all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you. Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. Why? When you take your problems to the temple, tell me what you do. Look at the rest of verse 15. What do you do when you take your problems and lay it on his altar in his temple? 
it becomes his problem. You make God your partner in the problem. The battle is not yours, but God's. That's why we build temples. And if there were no ordinances, that's why I would go to the temple to lay my challenges on the altar and receive increased divine attention and to partner with God. In fact, in this particular case, I love verse 17. You won't need to fight in this battle. This one's mostly me. Other battles will be some mostly your, but this one will be mostly me. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Do you see why we build temples? There's one. Let's do another. Actually, wait, let me give you a third. Let me show you the pattern. We did Kirtland. We did King uh, Solomon's temple. Let me read from the, the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple. Okay, this is Wilford Woodruff dedicating the Salt Lake Temple. And he said, See if this sounds familiar. Our Father, may peace abide in all the homes of thy saints. May holy angels guard them. May they be encompassed by thine arms of love and may prosperity shine upon them and may the tempter and the destroyer be removed far from them. Heavenly Father, when thy people are oppressed and in trouble, surrounded by difficulties or assailed by temptation and shall turn their faces towards this thy holy house and ask thee for deliverance, for help, for thy power to be extended in their behalf, we beseech thee, Father, to look down from thy holy habitation in mercy and tender compassion upon them and listen to their cries. Do you see the pattern? Not dependent on ordinances, is it? We give a God, we, we build a house to partner with God in the challenges that we face. There's one. Let's do another one. Back to section 109. Number two, verses 12 and 13. This, this one means a great deal to me. James, would you read 12? Yeah. Now, I'm going I'm to reserve the right to interchange two P words. Power and presence are interchangeable. So let's read it, and I'm going to interchange those words after you're done. 12 and 13. That thy glory may rest down upon thy people and upon this this thy house, which we now dedicate to thee. Here we go. Ready? That. Notice the word that. that. That's what catches my attention. We dedicate this house so that this happens. Keep going. That it may be sanctified and consecrated to be holy, and that thy holy presence may be continually in this house. And that all people who shall enter upon the threshold of the Lord's house may feel thy power and feel constrained to acknowledge that thou hast sanctified it, and that it is thy house, a place of thy holiness. Now let me interchange those two words on that last sentence. That anyone who walks upon the threshold of this house 
may feel thy presence. So why do we build temples? To give him a place to live amongst us. So I get to go home. You know the feeling of going home? Tell me the feeling of going home. After a mission, after a long trip, what's the feeling of going home? Now, going home is not really present. It's not really possible. No one go home yet. And so instead, he says, I'll come to you. I will build a house and you can come home to be with me in my house. If we stripped all the ordinances out of the temple, it would be a place where we could feel his presence and be with him. Let me illustrate. June 5th, 2002. You guys alive in 2002? June 5th, 2002. A very evil man. Sorry. Thought I was streaming. A very evil man broke into the house, a house that wasn't his, went upstairs, put a knife to the throat of a 14-year-old girl, and took her from her home. Her sister was in that room. He put a knife to her throat and took her. He would do horrible things to her and she would be gone for nine months. Now, when he took her, I had a seven-year-old daughter. This is shortly after the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping. The smile on her face is a little deceiving <clears throat> Where do little girls feel safest? In their home, but primarily where? Where does a little girl usually feel safe? In her room, right? In her room. But what did my little girl find out that day? What news broke that went straight to her soul? What did she hear? Little girls are not safe in their room. That's what she heard. And what is that gonna do to a seven-year-old girl? So, middle of the night, she woke up in a panic, grabbed her pillow and a blanket, crept into mom and dad's room and slept on the floor. Now, let me draw mom and dad's room, okay? There's the door, here's the bathroom, bed's over here, dad, mom. Look at all the room mom has. She sleeps right there on the floor. In the morning, I stepped on her. The next morning, I stepped on her again. By the third morning, I'm looking for her. Every morning, I woke up to my seven-year-old little girl sleeping on the floor next to me every morning for nine months. Some point in the middle of the night, she would grab a pillow and a blanket and creep into mom and dad's room and sleep on the floor. Now I began to ask myself, why? Now here's the hallway, stairs, front door. I thought it was the corner. I thought it was the corner that made her safe. Furthest away from the front door. An intruder coming in the front door would pass every other member of the family before he got to her. And I thought that's why she chose that spot. It's not, is it? That is not why she chose that spot. Tell me why she chose that spot. 
Because where did she feel safe? And she was absolutely right. There is no one that's going to harm you next to your father. I promise. And she knew that. How did she sleep in her bedroom? Nervous. How did she sleep right there? Now, she taught me why we build temples. Without any ordinances, tell me why we build temples. Because he's there. It is the one place I feel safest. It is the one place I get to be in his presence. It is a house of his presence. I don't need an ordinance to do that. I don't need to, I don't need to go schedule an ordinance to know that I can go be with him in his house. Now, can I do both? Sure. But start, start to see the blessing of the temple as up and beyond the ordinance that I performed. It is a house of his presence. All right, let's do another one. Let's go back to section 109. Any thoughts? So you did mention the other topic, and I was just thinking about that, of like why the culmination of the temple is to be in his presence. And just kind of, I guess I'm mulling over that. Yeah. The whole point of the temple is to navigate through the ordinances so that I end up where? In his presence. But sometimes we lose sight of that and we think his presence is only at the end. When the reality is what? His presence is the whole building. It's the whole process. Come in and be in his presence. So is it legitimate to go to the temple just to sit in his presence? Just to do what my daughter did every night? Is that a legitimate reason to go to the temple? Yeah. Say it. Say it. Why is that not emphasized? Yeah, I, I don't know. I remember I did this actually. I I was I wasn't in job yet, so I went to the temple. I just wanted to sit in the chapel of the baptistry. I just wanted to sit there and be there. And I went and the ladies asked me, like they were like, Oh, you need to get some clothing and I was like, No, I'm just gonna sit. Or like they came in and I was like, No, I'm just gonna sit. And it like they didn't like judge me or anything, but I could tell it was awkward. Yeah. And I was like, uh, I just want to be here. Yeah, you got it. Now, who were they? What were what was their title? Uh, Ordinance workers, not temple workers. They were, and I understand that. That that okay. You're an ordinance worker. I get it. <laughs> if I'm a scheduler, if I'm an appointment scheduler and not the doctor, what's my job? To get appointments for the doctor. That's all. I'm not going to diagnose patients. I'm not going to tell you what's wrong. My job is simply to schedule you to see the doctor. And I get that. I understand. Your job is an ordinance worker. But somewhere along the line, we need to remember what the Lord told us about why we build these temples. Let me just be with you in this room. Do you think the Kirtland Temple allowed people to just sit and be in his presence and, and do nothing? 
I think I worry that we've forgotten that. Good point. It's a good point. All right, let's do another one. Let's do kind of a fun one. 24 through 26. Back to 109. 24 through 26. Anyone else want to read? Now I love this imagery. Going back to this, going back to this picture. Uh, where's my Salt Lake Temple? Tell me, relax your eyes a little bit and tell me what you see. You see a temple. Relax your eyes a little bit. Be someone who knows nothing about temples. Tell me what you see. What does that look like? A fort. And if all of a sudden someone were to attack, where would we run? We would run there because what would we know? Do you know how thick the walls are at the bottom? And now I love that President, ben, uh, President Nelson said, after the remodel of this temple, there won't be a safer place in the Salt Lake Valley to be than right inside that building. And then he said something else. What was it? There isn't a safer place to be than inside your covenants. So we built this temple that looks like a fort. Now here's the symbolism. I walk in. Now, do you suppose, I can't go in there without a recommend. You can't go in there without a recommend. Do you think Satan can go in there without a recommend? I don't think he can. I don't think the rules are any different. He cannot enter that building without a recommend, and he doesn't have one. So that's why that building is safe. If I'm out here and there's an attack, I run inside the fort and I'm safe because he can't touch me inside the building. But I have to live outside the walls. I can't spend my whole life inside the fort. And I'm getting attacked all the time. So the Lord says, okay, you know what I'm going to do? If you, when you come in for the first time, I will wrap you in the walls of this building so that when you go out, what's happening? I have that same shield around me that that building is. And so it becomes, in a very, very real way, a house of protection. It is a shield and a protection. And the beautiful thing is, I have 10 children. Now, many of them are adults. Half of them are adults. Half of them aren't. Tell me what my shield does until they are old enough to get their own. When they go off to school... Are my children wrapped in the walls of the temple? They are. Now, I know we're in a mortal world. I understand. We've got to balance all of this with we're in a mortal world and we need to have a mortal experience. And that doesn't mean we're always protected from harm. But there is a level of protection available for those who can run inside that fort and then take that fort wherever they go. No weapon formed against them shall prosper. That's the promise. We're still here to have a mortal experience. We're still, I get that. But there is a level of protection in his house. That's a fun one. 
and you have to participate in an ordinance. I know that the garment is put upon you symbolically, but what if we didn't go through the endowment? Would it still, would this still be a fort of protection if there were no endowments inside? Of course it would. Of course it would. Okay, one more, maybe two. Let's do one more. Let's do an Old Testament one. I just love this imagery of the Old Testament. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 47. Now, let me remind you, Ezekiel is a prophet of the Babylonian captivity. So what was perhaps one of the most painful things for the Jews to watch when the Babylonians came in? They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the temple. There's this beautiful scene. Let's do it. Can we just do it? Let's turn to Haggai. Turn to the Old Testament and go to Haggai. It's just this beautiful, no, let's see. Ezra, it's Ezra. I wanna go to Ezra. Ezra's better. Go to Ezra chapter three. Oh, I love this verse. Ezra rebuilt the temple, right? After 70 years, Ezra rebuilt the temple. <clears throat> and when the temple, when the foundation was laid, they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good, for he is merciful, for his mercy endureth forever, forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now watch this tender scene. But many of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. Can you feel that? The people who watched the first temple destroyed and then lived 70 years without it, when they laid the foundation, wept for joy. In my scriptures, I put this scripture, I, I put this picture there. Let me see if I can show you why. That's a picture of my fifth, no, my fifth child. Um, where is this? I didn't know which direction you were going to go, so I didn't pull this up. But let me see if I can. Where did I? Oh, there it is. Okay. This is, sorry, it gets, it gets to me. This is the day his older brother left on his mission. Do you see the pain? Do you see the pain in his eye? Do you see the pain in his expression at the loss of his brother? There's a tear. Now, two years later, where did I put this? Sorry. Two years later, same brother, different set of tears, right? What is that tear? That's a very different tear. And so speaking of temple 
Whenever we, do, whenever we talk about Ezekiel and the ancient temples and the pain they must have felt at the loss of that temple, and then any thought, any thought that was given to Ezekiel that the temple's going to come back, I have to start with this picture. The thought of the temple being restored is that tear. The pain of watching the temple destroyed is the first one. So Ezekiel is one of my favorite prophets because he watched the temple destroyed and then he saw in vision it coming back. So turn to Ezekiel 47. Old Testament 47. Sorry, a little diversion, but I just it's always better when I start with that because you can appreciate Ezekiel a little bit more and his vision. Ezekiel 47. After the pain of watching that house destroyed, Ezekiel has a vision. He is taken. He brought me again unto the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house. So he's standing at the door of the temple and water is coming out. Now, how deep would be the water that's coming out from the door? And that's how it starts. That's what starts to flow out of a temple. So then he goes out a thousand cubits and how deep is the water? To his ankles. He goes out a thousand cubits and how deep is the water? Now it's rising quickly. He goes out a thousand cubits and it's to his loins. He goes out a thousand cubits and it's a river that I could not pass over for the waters were risen, waters to swim in. In other words, the imagery is when you put a temple here, water starts to flow. And over time, the water gets deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where it's risen above my head, waters to swim in, I couldn't pass over. So then the angel says, hey, 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 Ezekiel, come back here and look at the brink, look at the edge. He takes me to the brink of the river. Now, if you've ever looked at the valley, so this temple, so here's Mediterranean Sea, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, lowest part on the surface of the earth. And water doesn't flow anywhere but down. So here's the temple right here, and it's flowing eastward. And if you've ever seen the valley, if you've ever seen the land between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, what is there not? What is there not? And all of a sudden, the Lord says, come here. And he takes him to the edge of the river. And what does he see lining that river? Very many trees. And then this verse. He said unto me, verse 8, these waters issue out towards the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. What do we call that sea? The Dead Sea. The temple waters healed that sea. And it shall, that's future. This vision is coming. It shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, 
whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. Strip the house of ordinance work, and what would it be? A house of healing. Everything that that water touches is healed. Now, there's a very clear reference to the blessings of the temple flowing into the Dead Sea and healing it. You see, there's a symbolism there in the work for the dead. The blessings of the temple are going to flow into the Dead Sea and heal them. But there's a very living image here that temples heal. Temples heal. If they heal, they heal nations. They heal the nations where they're placed. They heal the community. They heal families. They heal marriages. Temples heal. We build a temple and it becomes a house of healing. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. And there's a lot of people on this planet that will laugh at the story I'm telling you and tell you that my conclusions are completely warped. But as I tell this story, I want you to tell me what the Holy Ghost says to you. And you tell me if this story is true or not true. Because I'm going to tell you, the Holy Ghost has witnessed to me that what I'm about to tell you is 100% true. Four nations conquered Germany at the end of World War II. Four nations stopped Hitler. Three from the east and one from the, no, three from the west and one from the east. The three nations that came from the west were the U.S., Great Britain, and France. Those three came from the west, stopped Hitler. Who came from the east? Don't say Russia. Who came from the east? It wasn't Russia. It was the United, it was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union came from the East and stopped Hitler. Now we had learned, we actually caused World War II. If you are a history buff, you know that we are responsible. We claim a little bit of responsibility for World War II. Because in World War I, when we destroyed Germany, we just all t- turned and went home. And we left Germany destroyed and in shambles. You thought the depression was bad in the United States in the 20s? Go study German depression. It was a thousand times worse because we had slaughtered the country in the the 19-teens. And we just left them. And that's why there was a Hitler. So when we conquered Hitler and Germany, we were not going to make that same mistake. We're going to rebuild Germany. Now, what are the chances those four countries will agree on how to rebuild Germany? Especially on what government to put in place. No way they're going to agree, right? So they do the the next best thing. They split it into four pieces. And so these three took one piece and and this one took another piece. Now, these three don't have a single problem unifying their pieces. So they did so. They unified their three pieces and they made a a single country and we called it for many years West Germany. And I remember those years. I remember the Cold War. I remember watching the Olympics and West Germany we come and we cheered them on because they were a democratic country. 
the Soviet Union kept their peace and they built a wall around it. Not to keep people out, but to keep people in. This country became known as East Germany. I remember those Olympics. I remember when the East Germans captured some of the Jewish athletes and tried to kill them. I remember hating the East Germans because they were, they were communist. I remember that tension. East Germany was free, sorry, West Germany was free, East Germany was not. But were there members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in East Germany after World War II? Yes, there were. We had been proselyting in Germany for many years, and we had many wonderful comrades. Elder, Elder Uchtdorf's dad was one that escaped at the peril almost of that family's lives. So there were good Latter-day Saints in East Germany. And when good Latter-day Saints grow up and marry, they want to be sealed in temples. And so they began to ask the East German government if they could leave the country and go to the nearest temple, which is in Switzerland. And the government always said, no, you can't leave. They didn't give them permission. So the church got involved. Thomas S. Monson was one of the ones that went over and pled with the government, let our people go. We'll, we'll, we're God-fearing people. We'll bring them back. You can come with us. Whatever we need to do, how do we get our people to a temple? And then one day the East German government said something I don't think anyone was expecting. Why don't you just build a temple here? I would love to be, I'd love to watch the other end of that phone call. Why don't you just build a temple here? Okay. We built a temple in communist East Germany. Now, did they watch it? Did, was it bugged? Of course it was. Did we make them nervous? Of course we did. But we built a temple in East Germany. Now, tell me what starts to flow out of that temple the moment we build it. Just a little trickle of water. And over time, and in 1989, the water hit the wall. And guess what it did? It shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth whithersoever the river shall come, shall live, because it shall be healed. With all my soul, I believe that one of the contributing factors to the healing of Germany was we built a temple there. Freiburg. We built a temple in a communist country. And I believe that temple had a tremendous influence in healing that country. So if that's what it does to countries, what does it do to families and individuals and marriages? What do the covenants of the temple, what does feeling his presence do to those of us who go there? It is a house of healing.
It is because of Ezekiel's vision. What do you find on the almost within a very short distance from the front door of every single temple? Water. Almost every temple. Salt Lake, you come out that front doors, what's on the other side of the wall? A beautiful reflecting pond that goes up to that fountain. The water flows uphill to a fountain. It doesn't, but bear with me. I, I'm even Draper. I, that flower stand, I'm positive, was supposed to be a water feature and then something happened. But there's water out front in the front of every single temple because of Ezekiel's vision. <clears throat> Where's the water at Ochre Mountain? The two pools right by the front doors. And, and by the way, what, what, what's the shape of the two pools? A perfect square. Every time I go to the temple, guess what I do? Every time. I put my hand in that water. Middle of winter, I put my hand in that water. Because I believe it is a house of healing. And whether I go there for an ordinance or just to be healed, it is a house of healing. Now, combining those, I think the greatest healing and the greatest protection and the greatest way to be in His presence and to receive divine attention is to keep the covenants I make. Now, you can see why we would do this after a discussion of what are all those covenants. If I keep the covenants, all of these things are added. So I leave you with my testimony of his house. Strip it of the ordinances. We would still build them. And we would still go there, hopefully as often as we do now, to be with him, to receive increased divine attention, to be protected and to be healed. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.